picture that you see up on the screen there is one that a friend of mine took about 10 years ago when we were on a backpacking trip in the Grand Tetons of Wyoming. Now, you can't see it quite in this picture, but if you keep going to the right, there's, there's a really high kind of slope of scree and rock and ice and snow and stuff like that that rises about 2,000 feet from where this picture was taken by Lake Solitude. And it was our pleasure on that warm July afternoon not only to haul ourselves up that slope, but also the 50-pound backpacks that were on our backs. Now, before we even stepped foot on that ascent, we took care to fill every available container that we had with water because we knew that as we climbed, we were going to get thirsty. We couldn't simply take one big drink there at the bottom and expect that that was going to sustain us all the way to the top. No, we were going to, as we climbed, get thirsty under the hot sun and eat another drink. And then after a little bit, we'd get thirsty again and we'd need yet another drink, right? Because that's how physical water works for our bodies, right? You don't just take one drink of water when you're young and expect that to last you indefinitely. No, it's a constant cycle throughout our lives. We take a drink, a little while later we get thirsty, and on and on and on that cycle goes, right? That's how water works. But have you ever considered that what happens on a physical level with water and thirst also occurs at a deeper, emotional, even spiritual level. That just as our bodies thirst, our souls, our spirits thirst as well. And everybody has these thirsts, right? We, we have thirst to feel significant and needed and loved. We thirst for joy and peace and, and real contentment in life. We thirst for meaning and purpose. We thirst for security in the, the, the future. Confidence that our lives are, are moving in a good direction. Everybody's soul thirsts. The question is, how Will I satisfy that thirst? How will I achieve that satisfaction that my soul so desperately yearns to have and that we all so desperately really need? Well, today, in an unlikely conversation recorded in the book of John, we are going to see two answers to that question. One of those answers is the wrong answer. And yet it's the answer that we most often go running after in life. The other answer, the correct answer, is the one where we find true satisfaction, which quenches our thirsty souls. So today we are going to be in the book of the Bible called John, John chapter 4, and we're going to find ourselves at a well. More importantly, we are going to listen in on the conversation that took place between a man and a woman beside that well. So we're picking things up here. John 4, verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through 
Samaria. And we'll just pause there right away. Jesus didn't actually have to go through Samaria to get from point A to point B. In fact, most Jewish people would not have gone through Samaria. They actually would have gone, if traveling from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, they would have gone around Samaria. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Jesus, though, had to go through Samaria. Because Jesus had to do something in Samaria. Jesus knew there was somebody he had to meet there in Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. A couple of prominent Old Testament figures. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, the fact that this conversation even happens at all is unlikely for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus is a man, and this Samaritan was a woman. And in that time and place, men and women simply did not have conversations out in public like this. It was considered improper, even scandalous to a degree. Secondly, and probably the bigger reason why this was such an unlikely conversation to take place is because of what you see there at the end of verse 9. The Jews did not associate with Samaritans. There's a lot of history involved in this. Um, About a a couple hundred years earlier, a few hundred years earlier, though, when the Babylonians conquered that entire area of the world, they took some of the Jews off into exile in Babylon, and yet they left many behind. They then started to intermarry with some imports that the Babylonians either brought in or uh, people from the remnants of the Canaanite nations that were still around them. They started to intermarry so that their blood was not pure Israelite blood anymore. Those who then were of purer Jewish blood in places like Galilee and Judea looked down on the Samaritans for this. Even more so, though, they looked down on them for the fact that when all of this kind of happened, they also syncretized their worship of the true God with the worship of these other gods from these other nations around them. Okay, So the, the Jews of Galilee and Judea in Jesus' day would have looked down on the Samaritans as being both racially inferior and for being heretics, really. And so they were kind of a marginalized society, that ethnic group of people, kind of pushed to the outskirts. And yet as Jesus meets this Samaritan woman there at the well, we see that she actually, in this already marginalized society, was an outcast even within that system. Now, normally, when the women of town went to gather the water in their big stone jugs, they wouldn't do that during the middle of the day. They would go in groups out to the well, which usually stood at some place in the perimeter of the town. They would go out in these groups, and they would do this in the cool of the morning. And yet, this Samaritan woman goes out there by herself during the hottest part of the day, when she knows that nobody else is going to be around. And we'll 
see the reason why for this in a little bit. Suffice it to say, though, that based on normal worldly relationships between people at that time, this conversation between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman should not and would not have taken place. And yet, when Jesus enters into the picture, the normal relationships change. And so a conversation is exactly what happened. We'll move on and see more of that conversation. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, in 21st century America, we kind of take our access to clean, drinkable water for granted, right? Just turn a knob and out it comes flowing from a faucet. In an arid culture, before modern plumbing, like that Middle East world that Jesus and this Samaritan woman lived in, though, life really revolved around the presence of water. If there was going to be a town, if you were going to live somewhere, you needed to make sure that you had access to either a stream or you needed to make sure that you could sink a well and gather water from that. You needed to be in proximity to some kind of water source, though, if you were going to survive. And then if your well did end up drying up over time or if the stream, stream ran dry, your town dried up too and the people would have to leave. Everybody needs water to survive. In Jesus' day, though, they simply understood that a little more deeply on an almost daily basis, right? And so the force of Jesus' illustration here would not have been lost on that woman. He's telling her, and this is our first key point today, that what he offers her is as necessary spiritually as water is physically. It's also important to consider the way that water works. Water is something which works when it is inside of us, right? You don't quench your thirst by taking a shower. You quench it when you grab that glass of water and you drink it down. Water gives life from the inside. So often, though, when we are seeking satisfaction for our souls, when we are seeking to quench the thirst of our souls, typically we go looking for it out there, things that are in this world outside of ourselves, or even, even the things that I might be able to do with my own two hands. Right? The aspiring writer believes that true satisfaction is going to be found in selling the, the best-selling novel, Right? The hopeless romantic believes that real satisfaction will be found in life when he finally meets Ms. Wright and gets married. The 
actor, actress, believes that that satisfaction will be had when they become an A-lister and a household name. Jesus here, though, is pointing this woman to an inner satisfaction, one that cannot be taken away from her, and one which he says will quench her thirst forever. It is that deep satisfaction of the soul that everybody yearns to have and yet which few actually look for in the right place, including this woman herself. And Jesus knows that. And so now Jesus must unveil her folly so that she can see both it and herself plainly and honestly. And so that's what we find in these next verses. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now the mask is off. And the reason why this woman was an outcast in an already marginalized society is brought right up to the surface by Jesus, the reader of hearts. That woman had been seeking her satisfaction in romance, in man after man after man. And when one would stop bringing her that satisfaction that she was looking for, she would pack her bags and she would move on, thinking she might find that in the next one. And And when when that joy ran dry as well, on she would go again, and again, and again, and again. Every time, left thirsting. You see, there are two primary problems with our seeking this kind of satisfaction in the things of this world, from worldly waters, so to speak. The first thing is this, that anything we have in this world, even the things that we might be able to do and and, and that we find satisfaction from, all of these can be taken away from us without even more than a moment's notice, right? All it takes is one decision by a superior to derail the promising career. A single run red light can total that classic car that you worked on for so long. Anything of this world can be taken away from us instantly. The second problem, though, and the one that maybe we have a more difficult time realizing, is that when we actually do grab hold of these things in life that we thought were going to bring us so much satisfaction, what do we realize? That it does not quite live up to the hype. And that even if it does provide a season of satisfaction, it does not last long until we find ourselves thinking we need something else and we go running after that all over again. I think of the late 
actor Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was a man who dedicated his life in the pursuit of becoming the greatest actor that he could. And he rose and he rose and he rose in the ranks of Hollywood. He earned accolade after award after honor until he literally reached the pinnacle of his profession for his work in the 2005 film Capote when he earned the Best Male Actor of the Year award. And yet the satisfaction ran dry. And with nowhere else to turn in his mind, he fell into despair and he ended up taking his own life via a massive drug overdose. And maybe you, too, can think of these times in your life when you grabbed hold of whatever it was that you thought was going to bring you so much satisfaction. The career advancement, the marriage, finally getting pregnant and having that, that family, whatever it was. The satisfaction might have lasted for a season, but ultimately left you running after something else in the end. Well, now it's time to take the mask off. I can't do it for you because I'm not Jesus and I can't read your heart. You can. So think honestly about this. What is it that you are running after? Thinking that that is going to bring you peace and joy and true contentment in life. What milestone is it that you need to achieve? What accomplishment do you think you need to work with your two hands which will finally bring you that satisfaction? Is it advancing in your company? Maybe even finding yourself on the board of directors someday? Perhaps for you it's finding that soulmate Settling down, and, and that's where you're finally going to find your contentment? Maybe some of you simply think that if you just had enough money to pay off that stack of bills that's piling up on the kitchen table, if you could just get out of debt, you would finally have peace, real peace. Maybe you look to your moral performance, that if you could just finally win that struggle against the sin, if you could finally break that addiction that's had its hold over you for so long that you would finally feel like you are significant and worth something. Jesus says that whatever it is of this world, whatever it is even that you yourself might bring to the table, whatever it is you are running after, it will not do for you what you think it will. It will leave you feeling thirsty all over again. And that's because, and this is our next key point today, the best that worldly water can ever give you is temporary satisfaction. King Solomon, a prominent figure of the Old Testament, later on in his life, he finally came to understand this. Though he was wealthy beyond imagination, though he had incredible power, and though by his own admission, he indulged in every pleasure he could find and that he could think of, it left him feeling thirsty 
again and again and again. And so in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11, Solomon said, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Feeling thirsty yet? There's actually something else that's going on here. Something that is even a bit darker and more sinister than all that. And it has to do with worship. You see, typically when we think of worship, we think of what we do here at church. Singing the hymns, praying the prayers, trying not to fall asleep during the sermon. And that's part of worship. But it's really not the essence of worship. Worship really means to give your heart over to someone or something. All the rites and rituals in the world don't matter one little bit if the heart does not accompany them. God himself chastised the people of Israel for this in the Old Testament when he said, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. All of those things that we mentioned earlier, significance, feeling loved and needed, joy, contentment, all of those different things, those satisfactions that we look for, God created us to find those things, not in the created things around us, not even in our own created selves, but to find them in Him, in our Creator. And so when we give our hearts over in the pursuit of all these other satisfactions, as we try to fill ourselves up with this worldly water, we are in fact worshiping those things as only God ought to be worshipped. We don't need to sing hymns and pray prayers and bow down to them if that is where we are looking to fill up our hearts. It's worship. And so they will never do for you what you think they will because none of them is God. And yet even more than that, as we run after all of these various satisfactions, we actually make outcasts of ourselves. You see, God demands the worship of our entire heart, of our whole lives. And so when we give our hearts to these things, we make outcasts of ourselves. And so we deserve to be outcasts because of our sin, because of our false worship, giving ourselves over to every imaginable idol. And yet God does not treat us like outcasts. Like I said earlier, the relationships change. The natural relationships change when Jesus enters into the picture. And we are going to see how this great change comes about as we finish up this conversation with Jesus and that woman at the well. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That woman tries to shift the focus away from her moral failures by kind of putting it on the religious feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. But Jesus is not going to be led astray here. He brings that focus right back where it needs to be, right back on her own heart. Doesn't matter where you worship. What worships, what matters is that you worship God here. Again, she tries to misdirect. Well, I know that when this Messiah comes, he's going to sort everything out for us. And that's when Jesus drops the hammer. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, this doesn't come across so well in our English translations, but Jesus does more here than simply say, yep, I'm the guy. A better translation of what Jesus says is something like this. I am is the one speaking to you. And in this, Jesus has just unmistakably claimed divine honor authority, and personage for himself. You see, when we look in the Old Testament at the all capital letters word Lord, that was in Hebrew the name Yahweh. It was the name of God to the Israelites. Well, here at the beginning of, well, where Jesus starts speaking in verse 26, he actually starts it off saying, Ego I me, which is a direct translation into the Greek of the Hebrew name of God. Yahweh is the one speaking to you. The God of your forefather Jacob, whose well you are so proud of that we're standing next to and talking right now, that's me. And that's why Jesus is able to claim as he does that he can give this woman that living water that will quench her thirsty soul for good because he is the God from whom that living water flows. Of course, this life-changing conversation would not have happened. This woman would not have found this satisfaction for her soul that day if Jesus himself had not thirsted physically. The divine God of heaven in the flesh of a man, became faint and weary under a scorching Middle East sun. That's how he came to the well. That's why he asked her for a drink. That's why a life-changing conversation ensued. Jesus would see this woman's deepest thirsts met because he himself thirsted.
This, though, was only a foretaste and a foreshadow of the great thirst that he would experience not too far down the road when he would go to his cross. In John 19, verse 28, one of the few things that Jesus actually says on the cross is this, I am thirsty. Yes, there was physical thirst involved in this, but the thirst ran so much deeper than that because on that cross, Jesus took that deep thirst of my soul, that thirst created by sin, shutting me shutting me out from God's presence and cutting me off from that source of living water, Jesus took that on his own shoulders. There he suffered hell, being cut off from his father, the source of his living water. For that woman, for you, and for me. He suffered agony like no one ever has or ever will so that we could see the deepest thirsts of our souls quenched. And that's our final key point today. Your thirsts, your soul's thirst will be quenched for good only through Jesus. All of those other worldly satisfactions that we go running after, none of them can ever give you what you think they will because none of them will ever die for your sins. And so at best, they can only ever be pseudo-saviors. They will promise you the world and leave you feeling empty all over again. Jesus brings that satisfaction because he can and does die for your sins. He sees those deepest thirsts of our lives met as he cancels that sin in his own death and then rises to life again so that we can be connected once more to our source of living water by restoring to us our relationship with God. So brothers and sisters, drink up your living water. Find your satisfaction in Jesus, and you will never thirst again. Amen. Amen.